Welcome. You are now listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lugani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work towards your ideal retirement. Roshan Lungani and Eric Olson serve clients across the U.S. They offer financial planning and investment advice through Arate Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor, and securities through Arate Wealth Management, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, and NFA. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm one of your hosts, Roshan Langani. As usual, I've got Eric Olson and Adrian Nicholson with us. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing great, Roshan. Happy to be here. How are you doing today, Eric? I'm doing great. So guys, how, uh, I'm excited for our topic today. Uh, we did last week Battle of the Planners and we looked at a scenario where we were trying to get someone enough assets, uh, get their money to last as long as possible. And today we've got the uh, sort of the the opposite extreme where we've got someone with a lot of assets and uh, I'll give the listener really brief um, information as to what they, what they need to know. And then I think we can just uh, start throwing ideas out there. I think we'll have more conflict this time. There are a lot more options. For our listeners, we, we went through this background and created this scenario. We've got someone, uh, and what we're going for was the extreme of ample assets um, and potentially assets you don't need. So we've got someone who's got a $100,000 pension and their expenses are only $50,000 a year. So uh, we know they've got extra money on a, on a monthly basis as it is. House is paid off, a uh, 60-year-old, that's single. And we have $5 million in investable assets, a million in an IRA, $300,000 in a Roth, and $3.7 million in regular taxable investments. So once again, the reason we used this example or we created this one is we wanted the extreme of there are more than enough assets uh, for the person. So um, what should we do? What are what are some of our some of our options? So Eric, I know you were going to run the life expectancy table. Correct. Or you had you had one actually in mind, correct? Well, in this case, uh, I didn't ask you any particulars about um, either ethnicity or about um, about health status. So what I did is I just took the general t- tables for uh, U.S. males and looked at the life expectancy at age 60. It took me out to about 82. And so with that uh, number, then I just extended that by another roughly, I think it was 83. Actually, I extended it out by another uh, eight years uh, to have an extra standard deviation, which is sort of typical and uh, for, for U.S. males. And so um, I made the, the target age 91. And with that figured, hey, if we get into his 80s and we're starting to see that we're way off plan. And by the way, as we get into it, that's I think that's going to be hard uh, to happen. But if we were way off plan, then we'd still have enough resources and still enough time to make adjustments and make those assets last even longer. As we've talked about this before, looking at the tables versus uh, age, I I tend to go with age 100 just to make sure you don't run out of assets. I can see both sides, quite frankly. I just like using 100 because I, I'm going with, I want to make sure they don't run out of money. Not that, Eric, you do want them to run run out of money. Um, 
I just feel like there's so many assumptions already involved in the plan that extending it out to 100 doesn't hurt. I can see how yours could be more accurate, but the fact that none of us can predict life expectancy well, I, I feel like, okay, I think 100's, 100 works for me. It makes me feel warm and okay. fuzzy. Good. All right. All right. Well, and, and well, we've talked about this in one of our previous episodes, what the consequences are on both sides for either under or overestimating it. So, uh, but anyway, so that's, you used 100 in your version and I used 91 in, in my yeah. version. And actually, one other thing that I think is important as we get into this, we discussed that this person does not have any heirs that they want to leave their assets towards and it'll all go to charity. I think that's an important note because uh, I imagine a lot of the strategies and ideas we've come up with involve transferring wealth. So Eric, let's start. What's the first thing that sort of stood out to you or maybe the first idea you had on on this one? Well, I guess the first reaction to the data that you presented to me was that this is a very disciplined spender in light of all of the resources that he has. And oh, by the way, I th- if you haven't mentioned this, maybe you did, is that you stipulated that he's single. Yes. So single, no heirs, only major beyond his covering his expenses is charitable purposes. And that in the final analysis, he'd want every asset uh, ultimately to go to charity. So... <clears throat> Uh, that, so uh, with that as a backdrop, I thought, boy, this is a very relatively speaking frugal person because with $50,000 of expenses, given a $100,000 a year pension plus social security plus a non-qualified portfolio, folks, again, that's a taxable portfolio that's, that's generating a certain amount of either dividends or bond income or what have you. There's going to be so much cash coming in the door. Usually what I see is that when people are in that sort of a situation, their spending grows to fit that. Um, and, but I worked with what you told me. I, I guess I maybe made a, a couple of assumptions about things that maybe didn't fall neatly into that uh, assumption. So I said he had discretionary spending and uh, f- fixed spending just for basic lifestyle purposes of, of uh, $50,000. And then he had medical expenses starting out at least of about $6,000 a year. And then he had property tax on a place. I figured, again, if he's living in Vienna, Virginia, I'm, and he's got that kind of wealth, I put him in an $800,000 home. And so I figured he has about $8,000 a year of property tax. So the property tax was extra. The medical was a little extra. And uh, charitable giving was above and beyond that 50 as well. So I don't know if I was using precisely the same assumptions as you were on that level. Why don't you speak to that? What? How did you break his spending down? Well, a couple of things I, I wanted to address there. First is uh, you'd mentioned people go- growing their expenses up to that level of cash flow. And Mm -hmm. as I was crafting this, I actually was thinking of a couple clients specifically. So this isn't real, but I have clients that definitely fit this profile where they're not spenders. So they're sitting there and Mm -hmm. that snowball, as Warren Buffett said, is continued 
continuing to grow in retirement, mm-hmm. right? So, so this mm-hmm. was this is a hypothetical, but I would say it it is to a certain degree. There's there are people I can think of that fit this profile that I work with. Uh, the thing I probably got a little bit off is as I think about it further, these people that come to mind, these handful are all seventy and above, as opposed to age sixty. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes a difference mm-hmm. in particular if you retire. Normally, it takes a few years to settle in. And the years before you settle in tend to be expensive. So maybe the age mm-hmm. 70 versus age 60 would make this a little bit more feel a little more realistic to you, Eric. Um, yeah. But to your uh, expense uh, scenario, I did use different assumptions because I didn't add it on top. Although when we created this, we we literally just picked numbers. So for the listeners, we I was picking numbers and I was trying to get an extreme situation where there was more than enough in assets and a positive cash flow. So Eric, as long as yours still has a positive cash flow, which it will with social security um, involved, adding on the property tax and adding on the medical expense number you used, we'll still add a positive cash flow. So I think our our final numbers may, will not line up because of those expenses, but the concepts we go with as far as how to best utilize the assets, I think should be pretty much the same still. Yeah, I, I bet you're right. I bet you're right. <laughs> So, um, also just a couple other assumptions we should probably ch- compare notes on. What, what again did you use for inflation? Uh, we used uh, 3.87. Our software, I think it might be 3.78. Our software calculates it based on historical inflation. So, it actually gets adjusted a little bit every quarter as new data comes out. Mm-hmm. So, right under 4%, mm-hmm. though. And is that a, I'm just out of curiosity, is that a trailing uh, 40 years, 50 years? How does it, uh, how does it calculate I that? I believe it's. 50 years. Uh, a deep dive on it when we first started using this provider, but at this point it's been five years. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember exactly how they okay. how they come up with that number. What did you assume for social security? For social security income, uh, the maximum a little mm-hmm. over three thousand a month. Okay. Uh, all right. So I assume the maximum as well uh, if it went to full yeah. retirement age. And I assume that this person uh, at the very least would would not start at 62, but instead would start at um, full retirement age or later. What did you assume the age was for the pension uh, starting? 65 for the pension. And I assumed, uh, re- I assumed full okay. retirement age for the uh, Social Security. Okay. So I assumed, I assumed that the pension started at 62. And so, um, so I guess he's going to have three more years of of pension income. By the way, my pension income was not inflation adjusting. So it was just a flat hundred grand per year for the rest of his life. Okay. All right. Very well. So uh, at least we're, we kind of know where we are in the ballpark. So, um, tell, tell me the story. How did you, how did you, uh, accomplish his objectives and what was the outcome of that? This was all about how to best manage assets because there is a positive cash flow when this person is saving money. Um, the moment the pension, the pension starts. Right. And then when Social Security starts, mm-hmm. this person is saving even more money. So for me, this was, this is mm-hmm. all about how you best help them manage their assets to accomplish their goal. And the goal, once again, is being passing the money on to charity. So I was looking at the most efficient way mm-hmm. to do that. Now, I did also, I'd love to get in the debate with you on a long-term care decision. I think that's a very interesting one when you have this scenario. But aside right. from that, I viewed it primarily as, well, they're, they've got everything they want, how to best manage their assets in a efficient manner to pass on as much as possible to 
to charities. Uh, oh, we should probably also share with people at least his starting point for his allocation. Yeah, the starting point we had for the asset allocation was we had said 10% in cash, 40% in bonds, and 50% in stocks. So let's actually let's actually start there, Eric. So that's the that's the person's asset allocation. When I look at a scenario mm-hmm. like this, um, I feel like the individual has the ability to do whatever they want from from a risk tolerance perspective. What I mean by that is they don't need mm-hmm. the assets to live on. Let's go let's go beyond that mm-hmm. that shortage until pension starts, right? So after the pension starts, they don't need their assets. So they can take the extreme of, I want to, you know, put it all on super aggressive investments to grow as much as I can for charity. Or they can take the opposite of extreme of, I want to leave it under the mattress because I don't want to risk losing a penny of it, right? Do you see... A down a downside to either, and actually, let me restate that question in, in a little bit, bit better way. Do you see either of those approaches? Let's say this person picks either extreme. Do you see either of them negatively impacting their lifestyle? Given the the big fundamental fact that all of his spending, because his spending is so modest, all of his spending is entirely covered by his pension. And then Social Security, when he finally turns that on, is just Mm -hmm. gravy. His assets are almost irrelevant to, at least in the early years, they're they're almost irrelevant to his his ability to make ends meet. And so for, for that reason, he can be aggressive or he can be conservative. But he won't be touching those assets for a long, long time until such a point in time that inflation, I assume Mm -hmm. 3.5%, but until such a time as inflation has raised the expenses, even while his uh, his pension of $100,000 has remained frozen. So maybe, you know, if he's 60, sometime around 80, um, the expenses that he's running will probably be roughly double. And uh, at that point, Though he'll still have a lot of social security coming in the in the door too, and so you know, still that pension, that social security will probably cover his his base expenses again, fixed expenses, discretionary expenses, charitable giving, and so forth. In fact, I saw just from RMDs at age eighty, RMDs his pension, his social security, <clears throat> and uh, and I had him wait on uh, in the recommended version. I had him wait on social security until he was seventy. Um, as well as just the income co- coming off his cash reserves and lo- plus all of the uh, dividends and income coming off of his his um, non-qualified accounts, there's $320,000 a year coming in the door at age 20 or age 80, I mean, age 80. Whereas his lifestyle expenses with, uh, again, the, the lifestyle fixed and discretionary is at 82,000. His medical is at 16,000. His charitable giving and uh, property taxes are at 38,000. So if you put those together, you're looking at really about 135,000 at most against 320,000 coming in the door. I mean, this, this guy is rocking yeah. and rolling from, from the vantage point of resource, uh, resource readiness. So we'll get into it as to how we thought about the charitable aspect then. But I just coming back to your, your core question, can he be super conservative or super aggressive? The answer is yes. He whatever, can, he can whatever do whatever he wants. He wants. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm right there with Eric. He he has a lot of flexibility in this situation with the amount of assets he has, and he's a very liquid investor as well. And like you say, sometimes when you start retirement, your expenses can be a little bit higher. But in this case, he has maybe enough cash flow to offset that either <laughs> way. So he does have flexibility. Where you would just have to monitor that monitor this over time. Where let's just say he goes super aggressive, and there are there. Is a period of a downturn mm-hmm. in the markets, then kind of reevaluate that. But he does have the flexibility to be conservative or aggressive and to kind of really meet those expenses when he has this uh, pension and social security uh, coming in. And for both your financial plan, do you have them taking a lump sum or uh, just distributions over time? What did you have for that? Um, I will answer that. I will answer that, Adrian. I'm, but I'm going to defer to Roshan on that. Before you answer that, let me just mention. Uh, can I can I wrap up the question of the allocation, and then we talk about how we, how mm-hmm. we accomplish that? Yeah, of course, that'd be great. So, because you as you just asked, and I responded, Roshan, that this could be he could choose to go anywhere from the most conservative and be all in cash or everything in the mattress all the way up to very aggressive. I I dialed up his risk tolerance a wee bit and I put it at moderate. So I moved it up from 50-50. This is 50% stock and then 40% cash and and fixed income. I moved it up to 60-40. You know, so I didn't think that was too radical, but I thought he'll he'll his portfolio will still be able to withstand these sorts of things and it'll give him a little bit more capacity to accomplish a little bit more of what he's you had said was his primary goal, which was charitable giving. There are actually two assumptions that I look at before this. I want to get your thoughts on it. First, Eric, you mentioned one that you said social security at age 70. Uh, Tell Mm -hmm. me why. uh, Why did you go that route? Uh, Because in the past, as you know, when we were talking about uh, um, the client. So let's draw this distinction. So we often find that as we get into the planning process with a client in some cases, what we're dealing with is a sufficiency issue, whether they have sufficient assets, sufficient income. In this case, it's not a question of sufficiency. It's a question of efficiency. And so in this case, what we're looking at is saying, OK, what can we do that gives the lowest tax impact uh, so that less is going to going out the door in federal and state income taxes and you know, more is is staying home or in or going out to uh, charitable purposes. And in this case, if I ran various scenarios, what I found was that he would be able to give away more if he postponed that Social Security uh, for a few more years. And he can use that window. I assume that he was retired now. And I that 10 year window to do a number of things, including just sort of a preview of coming attractions, Roth conversions. So um, but that's that was the essential motive. It just appeared that he would be able to give away more. Yeah, I I asked that because um, to me, this also and so I I was using this the uh, the same thing, I believe, age 70 uh, for for Social Security. Mm -hmm. But to me, this also is a question of risk tolerance, right? Because Social Security, if you're if you're Mm -hmm. super conservative and Social Security is going to increase about eight percent a year, then you definitely delay it. 
right? Because mm-hmm. either way, he has no cash flow issues. Clarify just so that for our listeners, clarify what you mean by it increases so, so by eight percent per year. Security, your income every year you delay it goes up a little bit. What your social security income will be goes up a little bit less than eight percent per year that you delay it. So going, let's say, full retirement age is sixty-seven. Waiting from sixty-seven to sixty-eight will be a roughly eight percent mm-hmm. increase. Then sixty-eight to sixty-nine, then sixty-nine mm-hmm. to seventy. So, so delaying that, you're getting about eight percent a year. And in his case, we know cash flow is not an issue, right? In the in the in this scenario, we know cash flow is not an issue. If he was, and delaying just seems to make sense with that eight percent. But what what I was saying is, if he's a conservative investor and he's going to earn, let's say, let's go extremely, let's say he was doing the mattress thing, so he's earning nothing for his money. Well, then yeah, definitely delay it, take that eight percent growth. You're you're not worried about the cash flow in the years before Social Security starts. Where it becomes interesting though is if you assume that he's let's say you assume he's super aggressive right and if, if you assume he's super mm-hmm. aggressive and then you also add in the factor that let's say you're doing some more tax efficient investment strategies for him then you've got a debate on mm-hmm. your hands right because then you're saying okay well can him getting that social security money earlier thus causing him to not withdraw that money from his own accounts as needed, right? Uh, can that lead to more money going to charity? So th- there it's a mathematical break-even calculation based on we, we using full retirement age of 67 based on those three years. What are you going to do for, the, uh, for those three years? And can you potentially get greater growth? I think I'm taking us, I think I'm opening uh, Pandora's box here. So I'll just keep us moving with this. The assumption <laughs> though is Social Security at 70. The other uh, question then I'd ask is uh, long-term care thoughts, right? Well, wait, before you go there, uh, let's just remember, Adrian had asked a question and we were going to return to it. So do you want to deal with his question or long-term care first? Yeah, it was in regards to the um, lump sum payment or just distributions over time when it came to the uh, pensions. I had the pension being a fixed income of 100,000 a year in there. So no, I didn't even I uh, I didn't even consider the uh that lump sum was an option uh in this case. Uh Eric, how about you? Did you actually look at a uh, possible cash balance? I didn't even think about a cash balance pension uh, Adrian until you just mentioned it. Yeah, I assumed that it was a fixed pension, but I maybe misunderstood your question. I thought you were talking about the charitable giving element. Did he do that gradually or did he just give it all as a big a chunk? Which which was your question? Uh, so I'm answering the question you're asking, Adrian. Uh, just what uh, Roshan said about oh. just the yeah, distributions. I get it. I get it. So, uh, uh, all right. So, yeah, I was assuming a fixed $100,000 a year and not a lump sum uh, option. The reason I mentioned the long-term care uh, question here, because for me, that impacts risk tolerance as well. The Mm -hmm. less you're relying on your assets, the more you can say, I'm willing to go super aggressive, where the more reliant you are, you've got to be Mm -hmm. be more Mm -hmm. conservative. So, Eric, um, when you looked at long-term care, did you look at, it's really, is it self-insuring or is there there a purchase of insurance here? In this case, entirely self-insuring. Let me hear why and let me give you the counter argument and then we can we can talk about where we came to. 
All right. So uh, he's 60. And if he waits until he's, I just, I modeled what happens if he turns 80 and yeah. starts to need help and he needs help for, uh, instead of, instead of kind of gradually easing into it, which is the more of the typical pattern where you need a, a bit of help and then you need a bit more help and then you need still more help. And so you might go from being able to get some help from relatives or friends at home. Then you need to hire somebody to come in for, you know, number of hours, let's say 40, 40, 50 hours a week. Uh, and then you need to finally get into a, a, a place that's suited for having 24-hour availability of care, let's say an assisted living facility. And then after a period of time, if you really start to decline, you may need to go into a nursing home and then you have your choice of that and a you know a semi-private room, a private room, you know, what are you going to do? So in this case, though, I assumed that he just went straight from uh, – living on his own and not really paying for any sort of help. And just, it just, things got worse fast and it got bad fast. And he needed to go into a, needed to go into a nursing home and he had a semi-private room there. And then that went on for four okay. years and then he died. Well, even with, uh, even with that being four years of, of care, starting 20 years you know, after the inception of this plan, it appeared that he would have more than enough resources to cover that expense entirely. Now, I grant that if he went, let's say, 20 years like that or 15 or a dozen years, that would be a different story. But when you hear how much I'm having him grant, uh, you know, and gift in terms of appreciated, appreciated securities to charity on an annual basis, I think you'll agree. Okay, he could he could turn that spigot off, and uh, instead he could uh, he could divert that to yeah, his so own care. I, the way I approach the long term care, and we can't do this because this is a hypothetical situation, but I just ask the client right and mm-hmm, say, look, mm-hmm. you can self insure or you can get an insurance, yeah. but for debate purposes. Uh, mm-hmm. Here's my argument um, for long term for the long term care uh, insurance is that okay. if we use mm-hmm. let's just say we use ninety thousand dollars a year as the long term care cost, right? And let's just say he has it yeah. for five years, right? So that's four hundred fifty thousand on the line. Right. That's nine percent of his assets at right. risk. And by the way, if you fast forward it, yes, twenty years, and then and uh, it's going to be you know probably double that. So now you're talking about nearly a million dollars yep. for five and years so, of care. So and yeah, yeah. using these numbers mm-hmm. though without without inflation, that's you know nine percent of his assets at risk. He can get really good long term care coverage for. Mm-hmm. I just use ten grand a year because I like simple math. So that's point. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2% of his assets, not 2%, 0.2% of his assets. So to me, the argument is, Mm -hmm. do you want to put 10 grand up a year or 0.2% of your assets up a year to put yourself in a position where you can potentially give that 450,000 to charity, right? Minus the number of years you pay the 10 grand, right? Let's just say it's, let's just say it's 30 years. So you're paying uh, you're paying uh, three hundred thousand in long-term care premiums, but you're you're 
that's getting you 450,000 in present value of benefits. So that's 150 grand more to charity. Mm-hmm. Now, yes, there is the counter that, well, instead mm-hmm. of you could have given all four, uh, all the other 300 to charity uh, if you don't need long-term care, true, but you could lose 450. So to me, when you break it down, it's $150,000 difference. Mm-hmm. Do I risk 150,000 less going yeah. to charity by getting the long-term care insurance to get that other 150 over? And because there are enough assets, you make the call. Sorry, Eric, yeah, I, what are your thoughts? No, no, no. I think you're making a great argument. And uh, I think mathematically, it's a great argument. And I probably should have, I probably should have not been so dismissive. And so I, I'm ta- I'm drawing a lesson from you. I just know that the conversations I've had with people in that 5, 10, 15 million dollar um, wealth base, most of the time, they're not very receptive to the idea because they just assume that they're going to be able to fund that out of pocket. And it's they just don't want to get into, you know, they don't want to get into another another insurance expense. So but I, I but I suppose it if I were a little less if I would if I would address the matter with those same clients a little bit more systematically and mathematically, maybe I'd I'd have a few people shift their thinking. But but anyway, I was just using my base of experience with clients with that kind of wealth base. They're my experience, and it might be just very idiosyncratic. But my experience is, is there's not a lot of receptivity yeah, and I'll tell to you, that I, idea. I'm making the argument on the other side, and uh, you know, not providing a recommendation. To anyone mm-hmm. just saying, hey, this is me personally. If I'm the guy with the five million in assets, okay. I would not buy the long term care insurance. And and I'll tell you why. Uh-huh. I I wanted to argue the other side of it just to have the discussion. But the reason I personally mm-hmm. wouldn't buy it is because mm-hmm. I think the, the percentages on getting long mm-hmm. needing long term care are roughly twenty five percent. Twenty five percent of people that actually use or actually have a an extended period of time where they're in a long term care facility. I think that's if it's over a year. Okay, so it's a little bit higher yeah. for women than for men, and uh, and and when you add the stipulation that you know specify the minimum period of time that's in a in a actual um, institutional facility of some kind. Yes, I would agree that the, that the numbers yeah, so, drop. So the, the mm-hmm. reason, as I said, I wouldn't do it personally uh, is because mm-hmm. I would just look at it. Well, if there's a 75% chance, there's a 75% chance I wouldn't use it. Right. And that, that math definitely mm-hmm. doesn't mm-hmm. apply. And this is a scenario where uh, your um, uh, life expectancy, long-term care analysis test, I think is very useful, right. To help, to help determine this. But mm-hmm. I was just sharing why I personally, personally mm-hmm. would not get the coverage if it were me in this scenario. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fair uh, enough. So let's continue on. So let, let's, the reason I wanted to get those assumptions in place though, you're looking at the social security and you're saying there's there, you're not getting it till age 70. And then you're saying, Eric, you use age 62 for the pension start date, correct? So I'm going to go, my numbers mm-hmm. won't line up, but I'm going to go with your scenario for a second. So you've got a two year gap uh, of needing your assets. Right. This person's 60. They're retired. They'll need it from mm-hmm, 60 mm-hmm. to 62. And then you've got the potential mm-hmm. future costs of long term care. Let's call it a million bucks because you're not insuring. So mm-hmm. they're in. That's their need of their assets to me. So they've got oh, five million in total assets. We need to we need, we have a million you cannot give away today because that may be your long term care need. Then you've got call it. Um, and I know you use higher expenses, but let's call it uh, let's call it. 200 grand that you need to get you from age 
60 to 62. So this person, though their cash flow mm-hmm. and everything looks good, they've got about a $1.2 million mm-hmm. need of their $5 million using long-term care and the gap until um, the pension starts. Now, the long-term care, I am over mm-hmm. assessing that number a little bit because I didn't peel off their pension and social security covering that cost. Going with those numbers that I, that I have, would you then say because of long-term care and the pension not starting for two years, they couldn't actually, uh, they, they do have a need for some of their assets? Well, in the first two years of my model, yes, they do have a need for some of their assets. Their pension hasn't started. Their social security hasn't started. Their required minimum distributions from their IRAs won't start until they're 72. So I use that that uh, although I did assume that they would have some investment income off of that $3.7 million non-qualified portion of their portfolio and they could use some of that. But in addition, uh, in addition, I assumed that this would be a good opportunity for them to, to take some money out of the IRAs anyway and do so uh, at fairly gentle tax rates by comparison to what they would be later in their lives, in his life. And uh, as a result of that, enjoy the benefit of having, you know, some tax arbitrage. By that, I mean, having while he was working, I, must, I was presuming, you know, based on the fact that you and I agreed that he was entitled to the highest social security benefit allowable. I'm assuming that he had a pretty strong income stream during his life. And as a single filer, he was also in a fairly high marginal income tax bracket. So by virtue of the fact that he was contributing into presumably a 401k or his IRAs or both over time at a pretty high rate and now could take some money out at a fairly low rate, I thought that's a win for him just on the tax basis alone. So let's make use of those first two years to do some of that. And then and in addition, in addition, uh, I, it doesn't always work out like this, but I just looked at, well, what would happen if we did a systematic Roth IRA conversion strategy on top of that for roughly the first 10 years until we finally turned on that social security income stream? So I, I looked at $50,000 a year for the first 10 years as that Roth conversion strategy. That way he's, again, getting some of that taxes uh, kind of out of the system. And now he's got this, this, this pool of, of tax-free wealth that's much larger than the initial $300,000 that you stipulated he would start with. And that, um, what I was going for for those first couple of years, though, is that he couldn't give away all his assets then, right? Like you were using the, you were using the, the income. Oh, right. From, so for those first couple of years, you've got this $3.7 million portfolio generating income. And that's, that, that essentially is covering the call, the expenses for those first two years. This is one of those things where we'd love to have yeah. a conversation <laughs> yes. with this client to find out where, at what point in time uh, is his, is his own vision to, to see most of that charitable giving accomplished. So I'll tell you what I just, I more or less arbitrarily chose for him, but I have, but this could, I could completely reshape this plan if after a conversation he explained, well, n- no, I don't want to leave so much of it to the end. So here, uh, do you want to, do you want to outline how you well, approach no, the charitable I, I, giving? You can continue and then I'll, I'll go into what, what I've got a couple couple of things. Well, I guess the one I, I sort of hear you hinting at um, 
those required minimums is distributions. You have them sending those to charities directly. Uh, so yeah, that would be that he could do that as QCDs. That would be for clients that have not heard of this. It's a something that came up in the 2017 Jobs Act, and it was a provision that said, hey, since you have to take these required minimum distributions anyway, um, rather than forcing you to take them out. And then itemize your charitable giving on your Schedule A, 10, Form 1040 Schedule A. We're going to allow you to take your required minimum distributions, but not withdrawals above that, just your required minimum distributions. We're going to allow you to give, have the custodian who holds your IRA gift those directly to a 501c3 charity. And and then you won't have to itemize them. Those will just come straight off the top in, in the the language of the you know the previous way Form 1040 was structured. It comes straight off the top before you get to the AGI. It's a page one subtraction as opposed to having to wait to page two. Now the format has changed, so those those are no longer relevant reference points. But the point is is that it doesn't have to be added into your itemized deductions. It's every penny that you're giving at that. Point point is is uh it counts for charity now remember that for every dollar you're taking out as an rmd if if you didn't grant it as a qcd it would be taxable and so in this sense it's just neutral every you're just a you're neither incurring nor avoiding in the truest sense or you're neither incurring nor reducing taxes you're just avoiding a tax or neutralizing what would be taxed income in this way but but coming back to your getting out of the explanation and coming back to your question roshan yes you'd assume that that would be done via uh, some good portion of that yeah, would be done that's via QCDs. definitely one that one that i saw now you you had mentioned you were doing the roth conversions 50,000 a year, correct? Tell me why you came mm-hmm. up with that with that figure. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought he's, you know, it is. Uh, it's only a million dollar uh, IRA, and most of his money is in non qualified. So I thought there's going to be some value in having some of that IRA money around. I don't want to overdo it, and so I just said let's let's try. You know, I ratcheted it up and down. I think I went uh, you know, 30, 40, 50 thousand, 60, 70, and just just kind of went back and forth to see how much converted per year for that first decade, what that did. And I landed on 50 as about the right number. You know, nothing, it wasn't, it wasn't too well, terribly scientific on that one. Similar number uh, uh, where I looked at it from a tax mm-hmm. rate perspective. So right now, the single mm-hmm. tax rate, um, the maximum income you can have to be at the twenty four percent tax bracket is one hundred sixty three thousand three hundred. Mm-hmm. So when you when you add mm-hmm. in the hundred thousand income, you add in uh, eighty five thousand of social security. You've got a little under forty grand a year. You can you can convert and stay at that tax bracket. Now, these rates change in 2023 mm-hmm. unless reapproved or extended. So this is something that you can't necessarily mm-hmm. model because you've got to revisit. If, if you go via the tax bracket approach, you've got to revisit every every time there's a change. But that's where uh, right. your number is a little bit right. higher than mine because it bumps up to the, to the next bracket. But when you're dealing with someone who has mm-hmm. higher asset levels like this, you kind of uh, uh, they're not they're not missing that. Um, 
8% differential on, you know, roughly 15,000 a year. But yes, mm-hmm. conversions, I think, are definitely yeah. a good uh, a good idea. Well, without getting necessarily into the numbers, here are some of the ideas we've talked about are what to do with long-term care, what to do regarding risk tolerance, uh, looking at donating your minimum distributions to charities, converting to Roth IRAs. What are some of the other ideas that you had? In terms of tax mitigation or what's the, in order to accomplish one? I think all of them are so deep involved that we can't really give a deep dive on on all of them mm-hmm. today. So I was hoping we could just touch on some of the other ideas. Okay. Well, so in terms of uh, my main focus in this was uh, this you know, the profile of this client is this client wants to try to do the most important thing to this client is charitable giving. So I thought, I don't really know the client. I'm doing this from afar, but here's, here's the way I'm going to do it. Um, I'm going to allow the client or I'm going to structure it in such a way that the client has essentially three, three giving, three giving, three prongs to the giving. And uh, prong number one is ongoing annual, you know, monthly charitable giving. So, you know, in that case, I started out with a thousand dollars a month and uh, and just went had that ratchet up for inflation and had that go on and on and on throughout his entire life so that that would just grow and grow and grow. That would just be a steady thing. Then I thought, as you and I, the three of us have talked about before, the the whole question of sequence of returns and the risk of sequence of returns during your retirement, I'm thinking, okay, if he's just recently shifted off of a paycheck and now we're going to have him be living for a few years off of his portfolio and then his before his pension starts, then we don't want to put him in a position where if there were suddenly a pretty significant market downturn that we had begun more ambitious charitable giving too early. So I thought, let's wait until he's roughly 20 years away from the end of his life. And then, and he's, and he's got 10 years of living off his assets, pension and so forth under his belt. Then we'll start more ambitious charitable giving. And so on top, so prong number two in his case would be starting at age 70, he would begin giving $350,000 a year from his non-qualified portfolio uh, using appreciated assets. And so those would be gifted to a 501c3. Now, as clients may or may not know, I would suspect most don't, or listeners, I should say, that when you give appreciated securities as opposed to giving cash, there's a double benefit to you from a tax standpoint. The bene- the normal benefit is that you do get a deduction, although there's, a, there's an asterisk on that, and I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But you're getting you're getting a uh, you're getting credit and some it's something you can put on your schedule a effectively is something that you gifted away and and that comes off of your income to with with a limitation that's the asterisk I'll come back to. But the second benefit to you is that you avoid any tax on the appreciation in that security. In other words, you avoid the capital gains tax on the capital gains that are embedded in that security. 
So incidentally, folks, if you're if you're thinking about making charitable gifts above and beyond your cash, look at your portfolio and look at the most highly appreciated securities in that portfolio and gift those rather than cash. And you'll have you'll have an additional benefit from doing so. There's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity in all of that. Having said that, now that here's the asterisk is that when you gift appreciated securities the instead of the current the current deductible limit on cash gifts is 60% of your adjusted gross income but in the case of gifting appreciated securities the limit is 20% of your AGI so you have to in some cases you make a big gift by the way that's it's it don't don't say oh well, I'm going to just limit it to 20% of my AGI here's the here's another little wrinkle and this is a pro tip and that is is that you can stretch out that gift of appreciated stock over not only the current tax years tax return but over the subsequent 5 years so you get 6 years to do that so in effect you could give what you anticipate would be the equivalent of 20% of your AGI for this year and the next 5 and you could gift th- that amount in in the form of these appreciated securities and uh, and you'd enjoy the tax deductibility for every one of those dollars effectively that you gave away in the form of those appreciated securities. Okay, back away from the pro tip and back to the story. Uh, so I'm uh, in, in essence I had him start at age 70 and start started to gift or was it 71? Started to gift away $350,000 a year which would proceed for the rest of his life. Okay, I'll, let me shut up for a bit and you you comment or, well, uh, or no, that, tell me how you works. approach I'll tell you a couple of things where I felt like I would need to consult with an estate planning attorney. But one is if there, we did talk about cash mm-hmm. in the accounts, right, as well. And um, and this mm-hmm. can be done for securities mm-hmm. as well, but uh, things like a donor advised fund or a charitable remainder trust, you know, that are, do either of those, uh, they mm-hmm. make enough sense where I think this is a conversation you have with the client and and possibly bring in an estate attorney to, to discuss this with you. But that may be a way where they can give away yeah. Uh, the assets in a tax efficient manner and get get some benefit. The other thing I thought about with this uh, mm-hmm. as well is is there an opportunity? And assuming the goal is just give as much to charity as possible, right? Is there an opportunity to do some kind of um, mm-hmm. life insurance type vehicle where you fund it with a lump sum now, so the person doesn't have to deal with with thinking about uh, payments and so on along the way? You do a one-time mm-hmm. lump sum payment for a life insurance, and then whatever what the face value of that life insurance can go to to the charities. The advantage to that is you can take out some of the market uncertainty, and then you know you're going to give at least X away to charity, right? So th- that is a scenario where where it mm-hmm. could it could work. Uh, and being a 60 year old getting life insurance, that's not it's not like they're 80 or 90, right? Where you're where you're you're going to have that. It's not going to be easy to right. get, but assuming good health and so on, that they could they could get it. But I didn't actually run mm-hmm. a uh, life insurance illustration to look at, you know, what's the premium is going to be? How do you do that uh, in terms of the amounts? That's a good point. And, and neither did I. So um, let's uh, there's a few things that you identified in there that I want to respond to, one of which you mentioned is a donor advised fund. 
and then subsequently this the idea of using life insurance as a part of the gifting strategy. But I, I want to pause and say, Adrian, is there anything that you felt like you wanted to add or comment on here? I do like the uh, gradual approach that you brought up, Eric, where just donating a certain amount over time, just kind of feeling out to see how your assets will be distributed over time, Mm -hmm. just so you can maintain that value. So you'll be able to cover the expense. And I, I do like a lot of like the tax benefits as well that you can go. It really shows that there, there are a lot of options for this investor out there to, mm-hmm. to do the research or to consult somebody would be, you know, very beneficial with all these strategies, whether it comes to deferring taxes, what's the best way to give to charity would be, it would be very beneficial, especially mm-hmm. with an investor that's this liquid. Let's, can I, let's talk a little bit about the donor advice fund. And then I think that's probably talking about donor advice funds, private foundations and other forms of charitable structures, I think is really would actually make a great episode. So, uh, Roshan, if you don't mind, yeah. <laughs> let's just capture that idea. But nutshell version, folks, is is it a donor advised fund is like a charitable checking account, and you get you make a gift to a specific foundation that's set up for this purpose. And there are uh, the I think the four largest in the U.S. today are uh, in this order. I believe it's uh, either Fidelity Charitable or Schwab Charitable, uh, and then Vanguard Charitable, and then uh, National. Christian Foundation and and then a few others that that go down from there. So, which I don't mean to slight any of them and each has its pros and cons and we've recommended uh, various choices among there. But you make this gift not to that foundation per se. Well, actually you do, but it's but but it's really what you're doing is you're putting it into what's known as a donor advised fund at that foundation. And you get in the year in which you make that gift that you get the entire benefit of the charitable contribution that you make. Again, coming back to what I'd said earlier, subject to if it's cash, the 60% of AGI limitation, or if it's appreciated securities, the 20% AGI uh, constraint. And again, you can extend that out for five more years, so for a total of six years. But the point here is, is that when you gift it into a donor advised fund, you can keep it invested. You don't have to in that year decide what is the the end 501c3 to which that money would be given. You can invest it in a, in a number of things. You can invest it in publicly traded securities. In some cases, you can invest it in private equity or private debt. In fact, uh, for those that are motivated to um, sort of people in my tribe to to have impact investing and um, to, to look for ways to have impact, there are impact investments that you can have either private uh, private debt, pri- uh, but private equity as well. Uh, that um, that uh, you know sometimes will be relatively low returning, but in some cases can be very high returning, and then that just builds the account. You don't get, by the way, a, a, you don't get to take it back. You don't get the personal spending benefit of that appreciation, or if it's a really hits a home run for you, but at least it does swell the value of the money that you now have available to give away. So there's there's that. But I like that donor advice fund immensely. And we'll come back to um, the rationale or the strategies for using that to mitigate some taxes in a subsequent podcast. Yeah, I'd I love to have that well, conversation. And, um, I mentioned earlier consulting within a, an estate attorney. Um, and Eric, you talked about why I would do that. 
not only mm-hmm. is their expertise valuable, but I also feel like th- these are irrevocable gifts. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that we've you know sort of turned over every rock before you make this decision. It's definitely important mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. think it through and make sure. And this is something that could really work for this specific individual we're talking about. It could be a great, uh, great move to maximize money mm-hmm. going to charity, uh, which is the primary goal. And similar mm-hmm. uh, to that life insurance thing I mentioned, Eric, right? You could that if the goal is to maximize giving money to charity, that could accomplish that. The life insurance absolutely could be part of that. And I, the thing I think that life insurance um, offers that other uh, approaches don't it, as clearly is, is that if you want to, you want to stipulate a very specific amount that someone receives, for example, if you have heirs, you might say, Hey, well, look, we want to give every penny away of our assets because we have a huge estate. We want to give it entirely to, we want to give it entirely to charity, but we don't want our heirs thinking, you know, what, <laughs> what, what you, you gave every penny to charity. So what you can do in that case is just say, we're going to have a life insurance policy of some size that, that, uh, will be directed toward this error or toward that error. And then, um, that there's a predefined amount that they'll receive and we don't have to really sweat it. And then the rest of the estate, of whatever size it is, it, it's, we understand it could be variable because we can't predict the future of returns. Then that whatever's left and it could be huge will then go to charity. And then the, the heirs in that case don't necessarily feel like they were completely overlooked or, or, or uh, discounted. I'm not saying by the way that the choice to not leave anything for your heirs is, is necessarily a bad choice. It might be the precisely right choice. And it might be if you've trained your heirs to share your joy in charitable giving that the, that they are actually gladdened by that outcome. So yeah, th- that's, that's still a I different conversation. Let's but assume no in this errors, instance, just because mm-hmm. I thought that would complicate that, no that errors, conversation. Right. Uh-huh. So if you go with with no heirs and I want to give it all to right, charity, right. then you don't have to worry about anyone feeling bad or, or wondering you know, why was I written out of the will right. or anything like that or the <laughs> trust. Right. But even coming back to the scenario that you first developed, which is, okay, he doesn't have any errors. Would life insurance be a, a useful vehicle for getting money into the hands of the of the charities, and my general approach about that is is that it adds another it adds another uh, expense into the mix, but it also can add some certainty. So if let's say this fellow's estate were smaller or his expenses were higher, such that the the relative in relative terms at least what's going to be left for charity at the end isn't so. You know, it, depending on how markets go or how his expending his spending may expand, it might result in there not being that much left for those charities. In that case, you might want to say, "Hey, well, let's just predefine something that will go to these charities, and it'll be these these life insurance policies." And, and this is where that uh, I was saying that illustration is so important, right? Because uh, the there's general numbers mm-hmm. on well, if you put you know a hundred thousand in the life insurance up front, maybe you're giving like five hundred thousand, know, some, something something like that. And and the multiple is actually the general rule right. multiple is actually higher right. than five five x. But that's that's the number. That's where continuing on the theme of looking into everything, I think it'd be worthwhile to look at that and just say, okay, well, you can get guarantee giving X. Now, what the big impact of that I see as a potential negative is uh, 
clients I have that started mm-hmm. doing these gifting plans and strategies, they actually enjoy giving the money to these charities, you know, writing the checks. In some cases, you know, they get calls back. They get to hear where their money goes. So that I think would be um, yeah. a big thing you'd lose with the with that life insurance route. Uh, whereas in your your illustration, Eric, when you have yeah. you know, roughly three hundred thousand a year going to charity, you get to really see where that's going. And that's a big number, right? You could, uh, you know, you could do your own Habitat for yeah. Humanity and build yeah. a bunch of houses for people and be out there physically if you wanted to give to that level. Yes, that's that's right. I, I think that's the that's the bonus there. So what I so I mentioned three prongs. So prong number one in his giving strategy was just giving on an ongoing basis out out of his income. Second strategy was starting at age 71, it was, so that he would start gifting $350,000 of whatever was at the time the most highly appreciated security in his portfolio and just gift that away. Um, And then strategy number three was upon his passing have the remaining balance of his estate uh, then go to charities. And in this case, the the number that I came up with was that uh, the total amount that he would be gifting, uh, giving uh, in, the, in the sort of end result uh, of all of this was uh, 20 years of giving 350,000 is 7 million. And then on top of that, he gives nearly another 4 million at the end of the line. And so he, he's given close to $11 million away out of a portfolio that began as, as you explained, a $5 million portfolio plus an 800,000, in my case, an $800,000 place. So I would say, I would say that's a pretty nice outcome. You know, he got to do something all along the way, very, you know, clean and, and enjoyable another 350 a year that's that's we're talking about you can make some real impact on some things you care about if you get or gifting that amount away each year and then finally to leave nearly four million to someone that's else huge that's huge Not you get too to bad. enjoy uh giving the money away now and seeing where it's going as well as uh one not only knowing mm-hmm. a, a huge lump sum is going later but that also if if somehow uh along the way you change your mind and you want to use that money for something for yourself or, or anything else you have that option where some of the estate planning strategies you give that you mm-hmm. give that up right um, with the estate planning strat- strategies i mean mm-hmm. like the donor advised funds or the charitable remainder trust that we that we talked about briefly with each of these things mm-hmm. right their costs and benefits right with the life insurance you're, you're you if you went the extreme and did all that one strategy you don't get to see where your money's going while you're alive you, you just know mm-hmm. where it's going to go when you pass away and with the with the the trust of the donor's advice mm-hmm. funds you lose the option to take that money uh money back and do something else with it if you'd like uh are there any other mm-hmm. strategies i was thinking that we we can touch on the asset management next time just because we've just gone so long on this subject are there any other strategies or ideas you had in mind that aren't specific to asset management itself no and i i just um, i was just really laser focused on how can i help this guy over the course of these years give away as much money as he possibly 
possibly can. So that was, I was really thinking much less about anything else than just that's, that's what he's told me is his main deal. And so let's help him do that and yeah, experience some, a ton some of joy that way. Right on what we would do with, with this being a hypothetical person, we can't ask questions to. There are areas we can't address, right? But uh, we have to ask <laughs> them what their thoughts were. But um, I think this, these are good strategies. I think we had consensus on using uh, the minimum distributions to donate to charities, giving money along the way. Mm -hmm. You had a fixed number. I was mm -hmm. looking at it from a uh, mm -hmm. tax bracket uh, perspective in terms of um, mm -hmm. the conversion part, excuse me. So, and then we have all these uh, other potential mm -hmm. estate planning vehicles. Maybe we bring on an estate attorney to talk about some of these uh, with us next time. Let's do that. By the way, just endorsing what you said about your tax bracket approach is the superior approach, by the way. I was looking at it. My metric wasn't tax bracket management so much. It was looking at what the, my software was telling me was the, what, whatever could jack the amount of his, of his giving, uh, of his gifting. Uh, ultimately, that's what I was trying to, that was my, you know, to use the language of economics, that was my, what do they call it? My, uh, the Mac, the maximum function or something of that kind. So, uh, just, that was the one thing I was trying to maximize right there. The objective function, that's what they call it. The objective function that you're trying to maximize. Yeah. Yeah. But when you break it down, our, our difference using um, simple math was uh, roughly 8% on about 15,000, right? So it's not that it's nothing, but in this specific person's situation, it's not a huge difference mm -hmm. uh, with, what, with what we were looking at. Mm -hmm. uh, Adrian, any thoughts or anything to add? I feel like mm -hmm. um, this just became a real deep dive that might be interesting for uh, for us, but maybe maybe over the head for a lot of our listeners. Adrian, do you have anything to add? I mean, I think it's great. I mean, you you both really showed that there are a number of different strategies, whether it's tax related, insurance related, whether it's involved in cash flow. When you're dealing with a client that has assets, this uh, has this many assets. Like you said in the beginning, there's a lot of options and a lot of considerations, especially when it comes to donating money to charity, even when it comes to charity, you know, the right charity that exemplifies your values. That's that's just a whole nother jar mm -hmm. to open. But it just mm -hmm. it just really shows that how important it is to look at all your options when it comes to your assets, especially when you're coming into retirement, I think is is really important to consider and just shows how important financial planning is when it comes mm -hmm. to yeah. so in this case assets. too because i i hear people i've heard people throughout my career either say a i don't have enough money for a financial planner or or b i haven't had anyone say this but i've had people act like well you know i've got enough in assets i don't really need to plan it out and i think our battle of the planners our battle of the plans the last two have shown that uh if you're on the one one side of the asset level uh where you may not have quite enough there are things you can do to make sure that money lasts. And if you're on the other side where you have more than you need and, and no heirs and you're giving the money to charity, well, there are ways to maximize what you can give. So great point, Adrian. I like, uh, I like what you said about just showing the value of the planning mm -hmm. itself. Yeah, I, I think if we think about, you know, speaking now to listeners, uh, if your if your goal is to maybe not in quite the same way as this hypothetical client to give away every penny to charity and every, you know, every one of your assets to charity, but you still have a, a very uh, your heart is nourished 
by the satisfaction of giving and giving really generously, we would love to help you through the planning process, uh, determine how that you can even more uh, generously give without it necessarily winding up with you living in your kid's basement eating, you know, Alpo and Top Ramen. We want to help you, you know, uh, be able to still live with dignity, but be able at the same time to give uh, more generously than you you probably could do without uh, the benefit of careful planning around that. And my observation is, is that, and this isn't to knock anyone, it's just to just comment about what our, our profession normally is focused on. Uh, most of the planners that you'll meet don't really, for a couple of reasons, number one, uh, they don't really focus on the charitable side as much. And I think in some cases, it's just because they've been trained to think about the questions of sufficiency more. Uh, but in some cases, it's just not really necessarily that closely aligned with their own values. That's another thing. And honestly, to you know, just to be completely honest about it, most advisors in these days are paid by the number of assets that are under management. And so if you're giving away massive amounts of assets... That is, in some ways, uh, kind of contrary to the advisor's own interest from a, from the standpoint of managing those assets for you. So, um, I, but I would just say, don't let that be an obstacle. And you can find advisors who have this sort of charitable inclination, as well as a very strong planning capacity. You know, they're out there. And if you can't find them, you know, we'd be we'd love to help you with that uh, with that exploration. We would, and we also last time said that. We are happy to do a review um, as part of an episode. We will protect your name, but if you or mm. would like a financial mm. plan done for you and have uh, two planners battle it out on your behalf, we would love to do that. So please share that with us. <laughs> to all of our listeners, thank you again for, for joining us, for listening to us. We hope you found it helpful. If there are questions you have, we are always available to help. You can reach out to us on any of the social media platforms or via email and please like subscribe give us five stars and tell your friends about us this is uh, roshan i've got eric and adrian here and we look forward to speaking to you again thank you for listening to the retirement lifestyle show if you found this show helpful gained knowledge or enjoyed the time you spent with roshan eric and adrian tell your friends and leave us a five-star review this will help others discover the show to access our show notes, download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, or to ask us a question, go to retirewithroshan.com. That's retire with Roshan, R-O-S-H-A-N.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube audio library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening. Thank you.